Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly restaurant related podcast. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. We have Austin Simmons, the chef of Hubble and Hudson Bistro, curate and Hubble and Hudson Kitchen in the Woodlands. Austin was a little bit early for the interview portion, so he's going to join us for the front half of the show. Austin, greetings. How are you? Good, sir. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. And I'm also joined this week by local restaurant consultant Nathan Ketchum. Nathan, greetings. How are you? I'm doing well, uh, other than... Uh my plumbing and my my place blowing up, uh, but you know it's to be expected in life, right? Yeah, it's a brand new, uh, very fancy, multi-unit apartment complex that is advertised on Culture Map. So we're not going to shame them <laughs> by acknowledging where you live. Also, we don't want you to be stalked by podcast listeners. But I'll have my thrones of followers. Yeah, I know a guy if you need some help. <laughs> but if you're a leasing agent. Uh, Nathan might be looking to uh, relocate. Uh, so let us dive into the news of the week. Uh, we've been talking a lot about closings recently, but we don't have any this week. I'm kind of excited. Well, Ship and Shield closed uh, the Viking theme bar on West Gray. Eda reported that Monday morning. Uh, do you have Do you have an opinion about Ship and Shield closing? Uh, only that I guess there's not enough Vikings around anymore. Yeah, no, I don't really have anything to say about it either, so we will just note that and move on. I am pretty excited about the Bravery Chef Hall. We have we have a food hall in Houston at Conservatory. We've talked before about Finn Hall, the uh, the food hall that's coming to the Chase Building downtown. Uh, Bravery Chef Hall is something a little bit different. It is owned by An Mai and Leanne Wynn. They're the owners of the Conservatory Food Hall. Rather than a food court model where you just go up to the stand, you get your food, you sit somewhere else, these are the Bravery Chef Hall is designed as five small counter service restaurants so that you will be able to watch the chefs cook. You'll be able to interact with them some. They're kind of set up like sushi bars where that kind of very personal service from the sushi chef is, is an integral part of the dining experience. They've signed on some interesting culinary talent. Ben McPherson, uh, recently of Crisp Bird and Batter, before that, Prohibition and Batanga. Gary Lee, the uh, former chef de cuisine at Underbelly. And David Guerrero, who has Andy's Cafe in the Second Ward. And Nathan worked with you at Andy at uh, Samba Grill back in the day. Uh, Nathan, I know that you are a food hall fan. I know that you like to visit them when you travel. What do you think about the Bravery Chef Hall? I think it's an uh, interesting version of the food hall. I like the idea that it's going to be a counter, counter service. So you can sit there. The chefs will serve you. Uh, you can watch them cook. I think it'll be good for the chefs because that way when you're tipping, you'll be tipping directly to the chefs so they can make a little bit more money that way or, frankly, a lot more money that way. Uh, it's definitely going to help them make more money and make ends meet. Um it's also cool. It kind of, you know, adds more to the diner experience. It also limits the amount of, of seats, I guess. Uh, believe it or not, there's going to be like 30 seats a piece. 
something around there. Right, yeah, between 30 and 40 seats, I think, is the plan. They'll be working with Shepard Ross on the beverage programs. We, of course, know Shepard from all kinds of places, Glasswall, Pax Americana, currently consulting on the opening of Maison Pucha Bistro, so he's got some expertise in that regard. Um, yeah, I'm really intrigued by this, and I'm, I'm really excited about Gary's concept. It's going to be kind of a mix of Asian food, the food he grew up eating uh, that his Vietnamese parents made him, and also the food he grew up eating like as a kid here in Houston just dining around, but still using local ingredients but with an Asian twist. I'm, I've been kind of waiting for this, you know, Vietnamese food from the perspective of a second-generation um, person who can kind of blend what he's been eating here in Houston with like traditional a cuisine. Houston version of Vietnamese food? Yeah. Yeah, that should be cool. I mean, 30, 40 seats, if, if you can do two to three turns on these things, uh, as long as the overhead's not too bad, they can make pretty good money. Hopefully they can keep the chefs. If not, hopefully the cost isn't too much to turnover with the new chef. Um, I haven't seen the spaces, so I'm not too sure on the financial side of the aspects. But it, it's a cool, cool thing. I like the uh, the chef service aspect, but the uh, the concepts that go in need to be something where the the chef is actively cooking something. You can't just be like pour something in a bowl and hand it to the the client. Right, and they do still have two stands available. Do you have an opinion about what you would like to see? Like, not necessarily a chef, but maybe as a concept. I would like a sushi. I think we, t- we discussed that last time we talked about a food hall, but a um, a cool sushi concept in one of those would be pretty cool. One that was open late. Hey, Austin, if you knew a, a line cook that was maybe looking to make a move or was thinking about opening a place but didn't have the capital necessarily to start a restaurant, is this an opportunity that you would suggest they avail themselves of? Yeah, absolutely, Art. You know, I think I think what I worry about are these food halls, you know, they just opened a huge one in Plano in Dallas Legacy. My old chef T's are open a, a knife burger. <clears throat> you know, our company does a lot in the fast casual segment. I worry about dinner service. Um, lunch, I think, is a is a home run. Um, but I, I often worry about that dinner service and how many people you're gonna really get in there to dine and and spend money. Uh, because if you if you if you can't get the turnover at night, which we often see in our fast casual restaurants, they're driven by breakfast and lunch. Uh, depending on the city they're in, um, you really struggle with that overhead at night. So I, I worry about that, but I think it's a, a great opportunity for a young chef. Um, whether or not they can pull people to come see them there or not, hopefully there's some other big names around that that you know they come and see that and, and try them. So so here's why I'm a little bit more optimistic about dinner for this specific concept. Uh, first of all, it is adjacent to a luxury apartment tower, uh, a 30-story building where the rent started about $2,000 a month. So I think those people will be looking for dining options. And there is more residential around Market Square, uh, both under construction than that has opened recently. So finally, downtown has a stable population. Um, obviously, if you're if you're spending that kind of money on rent every month, you are probably not a family. You are probably a young professional type. You probably don't cook very much. And so I think these, uh, I think this, this option will be very appealing to people like that. Makes sense. Yeah. And there'll be a wine bar in it also, which will drive people to come in and, and grab some wine, something to drink, sit down, hang out, watch somebody cook. Any breakfast at all? They do breakfast in these? 
Point. You know, I don't know if breakfast is, is in the works. I would imagine that some version of it would be beneficial to the residents of the building. So they may have to do a stripped down version of that. It's hard to imagine. Um, it's hard to imagine any of the participating chefs being there for three meals a day. Yeah, I, I don't know if Andy's Cafe still does breakfast, but they did do breakfast originally when they opened for quite a while, and it was very good. Okay, so that's appealing. Yeah, I mean, you could do like a, you know, I mean, for, yeah, for David, certainly a, a stripped down, you know, juices, arepas, you know, something South American. They haven't they haven't really released what the other two chefs are doing. Ben kind of told me it's Italian, but wouldn't get real specific about that. But it's, you know, breakfast can be casual. I mean, breakfast sandwiches would be on brand for any of those concepts. Yeah, such a fast, for, fast growing meal segment. And they're they're essentially in that residential tower. They should definitely do something. It should be easy pick up people coming downstairs going to work, pick up something for breakfast and head out. Yeah, so that um, it's an exciting project. It should open. They're saying summer of twenty eighteen. Those kind of designations always so make October. me nervous. Yeah, I said Halloween. Yeah, uh, at the at the press event, uh, they. Uh, you know, right now it's a big concrete box, so we will see. Yeah. What... Maybe one will open in some time, summer. Yeah. Um, and like I said, it, it has not been, it, we've not had much in the way of closings, but it has been a busy week for restaurant openings. Uh, perhaps none more exciting than Mastro's, Tillman Fertitta's really decadent steakhouse. This is the first concept at the Post Oak, his new hotel that's opening up on the West Loop. This is a, it's a chain, but it's a very good one. It, it has locations in places like Beverly Hills, Chicago, and New York, where it has done very well. Um, it was started by the same guys who own Steak 48. So that should give us some idea of the atmosphere. Uh, I saw pictures on social media last night that uh, Dallas Keuchel was dining at Mastro's on its third night of service. Gives me some sense of the crowd that's going to be there. Um, Either Nathan or Austin. Have either of you guys ever been to a Mastro's? I have never been to a Mastro's, but I saw photos of the uh, uh, lobster mashed potatoes, and I want to go as soon as possible. <laughs> it's like an entire lobster it's a whole lobster poached on, on top of mashed potatoes. So hmm. that like not 50-50 potatoes? Or, or? Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure it's uh, it's some 50-50 butter mashed potatoes because it, it looks like there's plenty of butter in those potatoes. So I'm I'm pretty sure I wanna wanna partake in that. It might be terrible, but I'm I gotta try it, and I'm sure it's stupidly expensive. Yeah, I have not seen prices on a menu yet. I feel like that's gonna be. Yeah. <laughs> I think surprise. No, no, I don't think it's gonna be a surprise. I think it's going to be very expensive. I think people going there know that it's going to be very expensive. I, I thought um, Tillman Fertitta gave an interesting quote to the Chronicle. He said, "There's not a restaurant like this in Houston." Um, they're going to have live music every night. They're going to have an expansive patio. Uh, Austin, I mean, you, you have a, a tasty menu concept called Curate that we'll, we'll talk about in more detail in a little bit. But do you find generally that diners are looking for more of an experience in addition to good food and good service? Is that, is that something that's becoming a higher priority? Absolutely. No question. Um, I, think, I think the days of going out just for food or, or just for service are changing. Um, we, we have to provide something different 
than everybody else at the higher level. And I also think this part of the reason is because is casual is starting to take over in a lot of areas. Um, and we see that in our casual concepts. Um, people love Curate, uh, not just because of the food or the service, but the, the animation we put around the service. Um, they can learn a lot. Um, so, you know, I've even expanded on it, and, and we just launched a program for Chef for a Day because people are so interested in knowing what we're doing, how we're doing it, and, um, you know, it's hard to provide if they can't see directly what you're doing the whole time. So I definitely think that it's, it's, it's changing in the restaurant business, um, in, in the higher end. Um, but you got to have sound service. I actually think service is more important than food on a lot of levels. Um, well, and I, and I wonder if that's not especially true in something like a steakhouse where, you know, fundamentally prime beef served medium, well, served medium rare rather, excuse me, you know, with classic cream spinach and six different kinds of potatoes that, that, uh, atmosphere is what really is kind of a buying decision for people. Well, we we saw that definitely with Steak 48. Um, the food wasn't anything utterly spectacular, but the service was good and the, the scene was amazing. It just it felt like you were in, you know, L.A. Everyone was dressed to the nines. Lots of uh, very uh, scenic people, if you will. A lot of crazy cars when you walked up the front door. It was packed every night. That's uh, why they were so incredibly busy. And and Mastro's will take a lot of that immediately. It will become the new uh, next crazy busiest place in town. Um, and they're and they're doing live music. Uh, the place is just huge and crazy. Um, it feels overwhelming just looking at the photos. Uh, the food is the food will probably be better than Steak Forty Eight. Just knowing Tillman what he does with his steakhouses that he has a hand in, uh, and that uh, Carlos has a hand in. So. Yeah, and it it's worth noting it opened with a uh, twenty thousand bottle wine cellar. Uh, I did a I took a tour of the Pappas Brothers wine cellar on Westheimer uh, a few years ago. They had forty thousand bottles back in twenty thirteen. I'm sure it's grown since then, but I doubt there are very many restaurants that can hang with that. Yeah, it's it the whole the whole thing is it's about having fun while you're eating, getting great service, and spending a ton of money. And they will do well. But it, it's incredible. I and mean, when you think about steakhouses in, in just that area alone, there's Morton's, there's Capitol Grill, there's Steak 48, there's Mastro's. Am I? Del Frisco's. Del Frisco's. There's the Palm. Palm. I mean, there's just an incredible amount of restaurants that all fundamentally serve the same food. Smith & Walensky's. Smith & Walensky's. It's just crazy. And, and you know, a lot of them are, are still doing well. I mean, it's amazing how much steak people can eat in the city. Yeah, the, the appetite is seemingly limitless, but uh, I guess we'll find, I, I guess if I were, if I were uh, working at a place like Morton's or, uh, or Capitol Grill, I think I'd be pretty nervous about what this is going to do to our cover counts. Yeah, Morton's, Capitol Grill, and the Palm, I'd be a little worried. All right, and then speaking of hot spots, uh, one other opening I want to note is that uh, Emmeline is open. I had uh, the owner, Sam Governale, and the chef, uh, Dimitri Vutsinis, on the show uh, a couple of months ago. This is their kind of take on a New York neighborhood restaurant. Um, Nathan, let me just uh, let me just you know we've had we've had a boozy, which has kind of been. Uh, the CNBC spot of 2017. 
Do you think uh, you think Emmeline is going to grab a lot of people's attention? I think there's some buzz about this place. Yeah, I mean, Sam Sam knows service. Sam has his his customers that he's he's uh, created a relationship with the years as he's been the he was the general manager of uh, Fleming's in River Oaks for years. So he's he's developed a, a glad handing of of a lot of people. So he's going to be able to bring them over, um, give it his go over there. I think he'll definitely. He knows how to create a scene. He knows how to, to really, you know, give people a good time and and make sure they they have uh, everything uh, perfect the way exactly they want it. And uh, so I, th- I think that's what Mline's going to be. It's going to be a perfect, um, you know, where the server remembers your needs and kind of like uh, Browsering Nineteen was in the very beginning, which is transferred over to a boozy. So it's going to be that same kind of thing. Brunch, lunch, and dinner right out of the gate. Bold move or. Playing with fire. Uh, playing with fire, for sure. You do brunch, your very first service, that's just crazy. Uh, they are rocking it out on West Dallas already. And then uh, I don't want to dwell on this last opening because it's, it's not that big a deal, but uh, River Oaks District has been just a white-hot uh, dining destination. We talked last week that East Hampton Sandwich Company is about to join Hop Dottie in the more casual space. And also now you can finally get coffee there. This has always seemed like something that has been uh, uh, an absence, uh, uh, something that was necessary for River Oaks District. Uh, so Cavo Coffee, the, uh, Michael Kaplan's new coffee shop on Richmond in the Greenway Plaza area, has now now has a branch at River Oaks District. I don't. I, I mean, Nathan, I know you're a, a River Oaks District uh, frequenter with some. Well, you used to live next door, so that that made it, but. Coffee seems like a nice addition there, yes? Yeah, my wife complained pretty loudly that there wasn't any there for quite a while. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting that it's a, uh, it's a kiosk instead of a, a store. I guess maybe all the coffee shops decided they couldn't afford the rent. Um, but it's better than nothing, and um, you know they serve great coffee, so I think it'll be a good addition to the center. All right, that does it for the news of the week. Uh, we'll be right back to talk about restaurants of the week. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? So for our restaurants of the week, uh, Nathan, I know I talked briefly about uh, Nancy's Hustle last week on the show, but you actually uh, joined me for that meal. And so I just wanted to know what your thoughts were about our dinner at the new restaurant in Edo. I think it's a very good start. They're, the menu doesn't grab you as the most exciting menu in the world, steak, snapper, chicken. Uh, but it was all executed very well. Um, what you were served was more exciting than it says on the menu. Um, the lamb tartare was very good. The bread and butter was delicious. The uh, sourdough was great. The bread and butter uh, appetizer came with uh, these really delicious peppery radishes uh, to serve with the salt and butter. The desserts were some of the better ones I've had in Houston in quite a while. Um, overall, I think it's a really, really great start to a neighborhood restaurant. Their menu's not overly exciting, which I think is a very smart way to start the restaurant off because they're really trying to be a neighborhood restaurant for that Edo area, while at the same time having food that is done very well and actually is a little bit exciting when you get the food. Um, so that way it appeals to both everyone in the neighborhood and people willing to come try the food from across the city. So 
so I, I did have a thought actually. I you know I've been starting to think about um, ranking the best new restaurants of, of this year, and in some ways I think Nancy's Hustle is kind of the restaurant that Theodore Rex should be, right? That that Justin has created this. Justin Yu has created this bistro for uh, in the former Oxart space, but that Nancy's Hustle kind of is is working in the same vein, uh, European inspired with the kind of just sort of craveable everyday dishes that keep people coming back. And I think when I start ranking restaurants for this year, I'm probably going to have Nancy's Hustle ahead of Theodore Rex, which seems weird. But if, if how quickly I want to go back there is one of the factors and it's my list. So I get to do what I want. I think that's going to push one ahead of the other. Yeah, I have not been to Theodore Rex yet, um, but from the feedback I've gotten from a lot of people, uh, and then obviously going to Nancy's Hustle, uh, Nancy Hustles with more vegetables is what I would have imagined Theodore Rex originally. Yeah, so we'll we'll see. Um, I think I, I am going to try to sneak into T-Rex one more time before I have to start locking in slots and, and publishing something probably... Uh, God, probably next week at the at the way we're going, but uh, yeah, I don't know if you know what date it is, but it's you know. Yeah, we're running out of time in in 2017. I'm aware. <laughs> uh, and then you and I also had dinner last week at La Colonial. They have a new executive chef, Hassan Obaye, who came there from Latab. Uh, we both looked at each other at the end of the meal and said, "This was better than we thought it was going to be." Uh, I think I think we had we had several really good dishes. We had a, a duck a roasted, a whole roasted duck for the table that was unbelievable. We had a nice uh, seared filet mignon dish. We had good appetizers. Um, yeah, just just tell me a little bit about what you thought of La Colonial. Why did it exceed your expectations? Well, my expectations weren't very high uh, in the beginning, to tell you the truth. Not because I've had bad meals at La Colonial, but because um, you know, whenever a restaurant decides to change their menus, I think this is the third time I've I've had new food there since they've opened. Uh, it just doesn't give you a, a warm and fuzzy feeling. Uh, but I got to tell you, the food was good. the 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 whole fried snapper, uh, I they 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 had to have fried it in uh, a really fine flour, potato flour, rice flour, or something like that. It was very crispy with with a thick breading. But it didn't um, didn't lose any of its Christmas with the with the sauce on it. And then uh, I've had the whole fried snapper there before, and while it was pretty good, uh, the sauce that they served with it was very sweet. And then it got kind of soggy. This one did not get soggy, and the the sauce was very savory and had a lot of umami to it. Uh, I thought it was very good, and it would immediately go into my top you know five or so whole fried snappers in the city, which is pretty impressive. Uh, and then, frankly, that whole roasted duck was very good. I don't believe they 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 ballooned it, you know, like the Chinese do. Right, yeah. So the, the skin wasn't separated. Uh, but the skin was still very, very crispy. The fat was rendered very well. The duck was juicy. Um, it was delicious. And the desserts were good. I mean, we had a... Uh a creme brulee and I'm usually kind of ho-hum about about that but I 
I really enjoyed it. I thought that it had a, a strong vanilla flavor. There was a, a coffee cake kind of tiramisu reminiscent that I really enjoyed. Yeah, the desserts were good. I don't, I don't think I'd really weigh on about them in any way. But the uh, we also had a... Um, we had lamb chops that were pretty excellent. Yeah, the lamb chops were good. The um, dumplings. Oh, yeah, the, uh, the steamed... Uh, I think they were vegetable dumplings. They were... Um, Squash, not squash. Oh, that's right. Yes. Butternut uh, squash. Yes. They were butternut squash. Butternut squash dumplings. They were very good. Uh, I would go back for the dumplings, the whole fried uh, snapper, and the duck, uh, and, and be very happy with that meal. Yeah, and I think, you know, La Colonial kind of opened with a Vietnamese focus. I think they're they're broadening that, uh, more Chinese influence, kind of expanding the menu a little bit. I think it's, it's all to the good. Yeah, it seems like they were just deciding to... Uh, take whatever Asian flavors they wanted to and put it on some of the dishes because they were blatantly not Vietnamese, but the dish was better for it, frankly. Cause I, you know, there's a lot of worry when they opened people, how Houston was going to take expensive Vietnamese food being the city of, you know, $7 pho. Yeah. So, um, they were very busy. So, you know, yeah, we should, we should say we went on a Tuesday night and it was absolutely packed. Uh, by about seven seven thirty, which is always a good sign. And they've been busy every time I've seen them. So I don't know that Houston has rejected them, but maybe they've rejected some of their more higher priced Vietnamese dishes. So maybe they're trying to to fusion some things to 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 sway the the crowds a little bit more. Yeah, and it's all to the good. And then just briefly, because uh, I do want to get uh, I do want to get to our conversation with Austin Simmons from Hubble and Hudson, but. Uh, we also had lunch at La Peep. Uh, the last time you were on the show, we talked about La Peep moving uh, basically a quarter mile from its location on Westheimer to a new location off of Mid Lane in the same center as Eloise Nichols and Bosca Kitchen. Uh, I have to admit, it had been many, many years since I had eaten at La Peep. Um, we tried a number of things. I, I just, I was, I was really impressed. I mean, uh, you know, Snooze has been such a juggernaut since it rolled into the market uh, from Colorado. People waiting hours and hours to eat there. Uh, I don't know why there isn't a similar buzz about La Peep, but just judging by the quality of the food that we were served, and, and admittedly, we were we were their guests and dining literally with the owners, so take that for what it's worth. But just judging by the quality of what we were served, I, I can't imagine... Um, the circumstance under if I if I saw the line at at snooze was you know an hour long I'd probably just drive to La Peep instead. Yeah, frankly, I think it's the same food. La Peep just you know gets the buzz, uh, and and I go to La Peep almost once a week, and the food we got was the same food I get every time, and I get the same food, the same service every time. It's a it's a cool place. The pancakes are delicious. My wife gets these cinnamon pecan pancakes that she's in love with. The eggs are cooked correctly. I'm not going to say they're the best eggs in the world because I think they just use commodity eggs, but uh, they actually cook them the way you want them, which uh, in today's age, age is a kind of a miracle. Um, yeah, I, I love the peep. I think people should go. Now they're serving uh, alcohol. They have uh, Bloody Marys, mimosas. They have a really cool new po- coffee program. They're going to do nitro coffee. Uh, a lot of different lattes and stuff like that. So definitely, definitely worth a visit, guys. All right. So Nathan Ketchum 
still a La Peep super fan. That does it for our Restaurants of the Week. Uh, we'll be right back with Austin Simmons. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? Our interview this week is brought to you by our friends at 8th Wonder Brewery, one of my favorite local breweries, conveniently located in East Downtown. I mean, you can find 8th Wonder on tap walls and on store shelves all over the city, but there is something really special about visiting the brewery, whether it's for a soccer game or a baseball game, you know, certainly with the local baseball team in the playoffs, it's, it's going to be an exciting fall here in Houston, and there's really no place better to go before a game than 8th Wonder Brewery. You can have a couple of pints, maybe AstroTurf, their dry-hopped cream ale that's new and in stores, or maybe their Side Hustle, which is a barrel-aged version of Haterade, their Goza. And of course, one of the fun things about going to 8th Wonder's Brewery is that you have the Eatsy Boys food truck there. They have a new menu full of all sorts of new things to try. And just recently, they added David Attic's 36-foot-tall statues of the Beatles. John, Paul, George, and Ringo rendered in concrete in their Sgt. Pepper gear. And if you're a real Beatles fan, you'll notice that they're not positioned as they would have been on stage. I think that may be done just to infuriate hardcore Beatles fans, or maybe it's an accident, I don't know. But definitely check out 8th Wonder. Have a beer, have a bite from the YouTube boys, and enjoy this uh, fall weather that we all know is right around the corner. Thank you to 8th Wonder, and here is our interview of the week. All right, Austin, we, we heard from you a little bit at the uh, during the News of the Week segment, but but now it's time to talk about you. Beautiful. Thank you. Uh, why don't we just start a little bit at the beginning? I, I think you know, I think many people will know you from your work at Hubble and Hudson, but how did you get started in the restaurant industry? You know, to be honest, Eric, I was kind of a train wreck in high school. Um, I liked to party, and I wasn't really concerned about grades in school. Um, and so... My mom cooked a lot. My stepmom cooked a lot. Uh, my mima who watched me, cooked a lot. And my dad said, hey, you're about to graduate. What are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm not real sure. Um, at the time, Emerald was on TV all the time. And I watched Great Chefs, Great Cities every summer. And I was always interested in cooking, but I, I didn't ever think that that's what I wanted to do. So he said, well, you got to do something. I'd worked since I was 15 years old. I always held a job. Um, and I saw the Cordon Bleu on TV, and I said, that's what I want to do. I'd never worked in a restaurant before in my life. Um, and I told my father, this is what I want to do. And he pretty much fell out of his chair. Um, he said, you want to be a cook? And I said, yeah, a chef, a cook, whatever you want to call it. Sure, that's what I want to do. And I want to start Le Cordon Bleu two, years after, or two months after I graduate. And he was shocked, and uh, my stepmom was a huge supporter. So was my mother. I went to Le Cordon Bleu and um, fell in love with it. You know, I was I was in the top two percent of every lab six weeks in the program. Um, in the classroom, I was you know a C student at best. We did six weeks lab, six weeks class, and then um, really after that, you know, I didn't have a place to do my externship. I wasn't really concerned about where that was going to be at the time. And a guy came down from the mansion on Turtle Creek and spoke to our last lab class of the mansion and what the, the industry, he had went to Le Cordon Bleu, what, what it's done for him. He was the saucier at the time. And he said, uh, you know, we do take some externs. Um, if you're interested, come up, try some food. Well, I grew up in Arlington, Texas, um, in between Dallas and Fort Worth, and I had never heard of the mansion in my life. We were, 
didn't you know we grew up pretty middle class so yeah, we we should say uh, this is the mention on turtle creek it's probably one of the five most famous restaurants in the dallas area yeah and at the time i i don't really not sure how many five star five diamond properties there were in texas but at the time they had just lost their fifth star under dean fairing and he was making a transition but anyways um, me being the novice I was and not knowing anything about the business, I drove up on a Friday and, and asked to see the chef and I valeted my car in the front of the mansion and I walked in and said, Hey, I'm here to apply. And the lady said, you're here to apply for a job at the front desk. I said, yeah. She's like, where did you park? I said, I valeted out front. She says, no, you need to go around back and wait through security. You don't come to the front of this place. And I'm like, okay. Um, so I got in my car, drove around back and waited through security for two hours. And the saucier Dave came out and Gave me a tour of the kitchen, and um, I asked him if I could do my externship. He says, well, I don't hire those, uh, but you can leave your resume here, your application, and we'll get back to you. I'll never heard back in the next week, so I drove back, and I waited through security. Finally, the executive sous chef came out a couple hours later and um, talked to me. He said, you know, he said, listen, he said, I appreciate you coming up here, but this is just not where you start in this business. Um, we're just a little bit too high end. You need, to, you need to work your way through maybe a chain restaurant and kind of get the prep down before you come to the mansion. Um, and I didn't know any better. So I, I, I wanted to work there. So I let, went home, bummed, drove back the next Friday on the fifth Friday, long story short, after I'd seen all the chefs, the executive Sue comes back out and he says, you're not going to go away. Are you? And I said, no, I want to work here. At the time I was delivering milk for Oak farms. I delivered milk all through culinary school and made $16 an hour. He said, I tell you what, you can work here as an extern, but I'm going to pay you $7 and 45 cents. And I said, okay, I'll take it. And for a year and a half, that's what I made. Barely could get from my mom's house to the mansion. But that's how it started for me. And, you know, the mansion was probably and still is one of the, one of the only brigades in, in the state. I mean, there's very few hotel and restaurants that have what they had at that time when it comes to how many chefs, how many levels. Um, it was a French brigade, and we had everybody. I learned from so many people from that place. It just catapulted my career. Um, all right. So, so when did you meet John Tizar? So I was working the bar station at the mansion when he came in about two months after I started and the bar station was on the back of the line. And as he was analyzing how he wanted to take over this restaurant, he would stand next to me and we would talk about just common sense things. This is wrong. This needs to be done different. If you did it this way, it would turn out this way. And he just kind of used me as a springboard in the middle of service for about two weeks. And we were just having casual conversation. I'd have had no clue what I was talking about, but I was just kind of a yes, sir, at that point. And, and just, just to clarify, how old were you when this was going on? I was 19. Okay. I was 19. And this, this high-flying uh, chef from New York was about to take over the restaurant? Correct. And um, I was cutting potatoes. I mean, my first job at the mansion, first, first day I showed up, they gave me three five-gallon buckets of new potatoes and said, here, quarter these, and this is for someone else's station, and you got 30 minutes. It took me three hours. So Tizar said to me, because he liked me, he said, you want to make some real money? And I said, yeah. And he says, well, I'm going to help you in this industry, which was pretty rare, I think. And um, within a year and a half, I was lead line cook of the chef's room when he opened it. 22 seat, nothing but tasting menus. Um, and I worked all the way through the, the mansion restaurant and then all the way in the chef's room the whole year and a half. It was open before his departure. So when he left the mansion, is that when you came to the Woodlands? No, sir. I went and took a job at a, at a restaurant called Blackfin, a casual restaurant. Mm-hmm. They, they pretty much poached me and said, hey, 
you're 22 years old. We want to make you a sous chef and pay you 30 grand a year. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm so much more money than I'm making right now. And uh, I went and did it for a year while he went to New York and went and worked for David Burke. After the mansion, he went and worked for David Burke for a little while. So, so, when, so how long have you been in the Houston area? 2009 is when I came down with Tzar to, reopen the, to, to open Tzar's Modern Seafood and Steak. Um, and was there through that whole project and then went to work for Hubble and Hudson. And then when you, I guess when you came to Hubble and Hudson, it was this kind of, you know, it was this restaurant, but it was attached to this grocery store. I, I don't know that it had really a, a strong identity. What were, what were you kind of tasked with? Like when, when you, when you came in there? Well, you know, I started as a sous chef and um, the sous chef that was there at the time was working for Adele Concalves, who is the, the chef of Fieldings. Um, and this was back when Carrie and him were still there and operating it. Um, that other sous chef, I worked with him for a little while and then he went on to open our other restaurant, Hubble and Hudson Kitchen. So after about three months, it was just me and Adele uh, running the whole food service operation. Um, we had prepared foods. We were doing a ton of catering. We were doing the bistro, um, cheese and charcuterie counter. Um, and we had a, a huge, or a, it wasn't huge, a small sandwich bar that did huge sales and uh, a big salad bar. Um, and me and him ran that whole operation under his guidance for the first year I worked there. Um, and then Adele left um, to, into 2011. And, uh, Carrie was looking for another chef, and I basically told him, hey, I think I can do this. And he said, well, it's September, if you can make it through the holiday season without train wrecking the place. Um, because we did so many meals to go and so much catering, and I mean, it's, it's just multifaceted. It was just really crazy when I look back on it. Um, I'll give you the job. So I worked stupid amounts of hours, took very little time off, and, and worked really hard for that holiday season. And he gave me the job a day before my birthday, January 20th, um, beginning of 2012. And then I guess it was what, was it 2013 or 2014 that you, that they closed the grocery store? Yeah. 2014. So all of a sudden this, this thing that had kind of been associated with Hubble and Hudson from the very beginning has been removed and they, the ownership decided to move forward with it just as a restaurant. What was that like for you? I mean, did you, did you think about leaving? Were you excited about the opportunity? I mean, how did that, how did that play out? So the carry departure was very interesting and awkward. Um, you know, without going into it in detail, it just wasn't a good split. Um, and I'm not really going to give my opinion on that, but you know, the owner came to me and yeah, of course I thought about leaving. I actually, was maybe thinking about following Adele. I, did, I wasn't real sure uh, what I wanted to do at the time. And um, the owner came to me, Dirk Laukeen, and he's, he was involved from the beginning of my employment, now I understand. And uh, he said, listen, he said, I think you have what it takes to run this place, and I really appreciate all the hard work and effort you've put in, and I want to give you an opportunity. And so at that point, um, I knew that, that I was going to stay there and give it my best shot because I wasn't, you know, what a great opportunity that was. I was 24 years old. So did they present, did they present curate to you or was that like part of the negotiation about, I will stay and do this with you, but I want, I want the opportunity to do some of the more elevated food that I did with the mansion. 
No, um, I went to the ownership and said, hey, if you're going to close the market, which we knew we were, and you're going to keep the bistro open, we need private dining space. The Woodlands is a gold mine for private dining. It really is. There's tons of businesses up there that do a lot of business meetings and private dining is a no-brainer. And we did not have that in the old restaurant. So if you're going to close this space, you own the space, spend a little bit of money and put some private dining space in. Um, and then I want a chef's table that I can do tasting menus at because I have all this demand. I've been doing tastings for years in the bistro on the weekends, and I would just do it off on the side while my guys executed to the guests in the dining room. I said, there's, there's business up here for that. Let's just build the chef's table. Well, once we built the chef's table in the beginning of curate, big tables weren't, weren't what we were doing. We we were, we were getting a lot of two and four tops that wanted to come in and do it. And so curate kind of evolved. It was definitely my idea, but the ownership was very receptive to it. Um, it kind of evolved into the two room. Hey, this is going to be a curated tasting. Um, we didn't set out to open curate when we remodeled that restaurant by any means. We were just trying to capitalize on the fact that we knew that business was up there. Um, and you know, when, when the tasting menu restaurant is not a standalone and it's a part of another restaurant, it makes sense in my opinion, because you can piggyback on the other orders and you know, you're not paying rent on the space just solely by that business. And that's why we did the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, the way we did it. Um, and you know, that's kind of how it happened. Yeah. I, I guess we should, we should probably clarify just for people who are, who are listening to this and, and haven't been there that the curate is your tasting menu restaurant within Hubble and Hudson Bistro. And it's a totally, it, it's a totally different experience. It's, it's a separate menu. It's different ingredients. Um, different service. Yeah. How did you, how did you develop the idea or how did you, I mean, like you said, you were doing tastings, but but when did you start to develop this idea of like a, a sort of super premium offering? You know, I, working for Tzar in the chef's room, very European. We played with every ingredient in the world in a year and a half that you can imagine that was luxury. Um, and, you know, I was trained French at Le Cordon Bleu and working for Tzar, who is very French in his approach. That's just how it came about. Um for me, I longed for that after I left the mansion. I never, I never knew at the time I would, but there's something about executing a tasting menu with high-level ingredients at a high level and cooking proteins and starches and vegetables and sauces to perfection that just I can't get enough of, to be honest. Um, and that's kind of you know the direction we went with it, to be honest. Um, Vegetables are hard for us to get in the woodlands. It's not an easy market to get farmers to drive up to. Um, we've cultivated some of our own inside the woodlands. We have a, um, a shipping container that's growing all of our herbs and lettuces now. But as far as just like farms go, uh, there are a lot of here down in the city, but a lot of them wouldn't come up north for a long time. So protein focused is kind of what I learned and kind of what made the most sense for us at the time. Yeah, and I... I also feel like, I mean, this is, this is a very premium experience. I think it starts, what, at about $125 a diner. Correct. So I, I don't know that you could you could do eight courses of vegetables and give people a value or a, a, an experience that they would feel like was a value. And, and it's it's worth noting. I mean, you you know, there's sea urchin, there's oysters, there's uh, Texas Wagyu, there's Japanese Wagyu. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff on that menu. Correct. And we've stuck that way, but we, we are doing a lot of vegan, a lot of vegetarian, a lot of pescatarian. I mean, Curate 
is is really turned into what it, what what the word means, and we curate the menu around the guest. And uh, I do tons of private parties now, probably more so than the weekend business on on some months, a lot of months. Um, I'm doing a thirty top tomorrow night in a house curate style, offsite. I've taken curate offsite many a times with my team. Um, so a lot of business parties. If I mean, I did a wedding reception for curate for sixty five people last month, all vegan. Um, so we're we are seeing uh, a huge change in in that in that regard. But we don't say no to any menu. If you call me on a Thursday afternoon before three o'clock and say I want two vegans tonight, vegan tastings tonight, and curate, I'm going to do it. And the beautiful thing about having the bistro is, is I have a lot of product in house already that I can pull from. So we don't need 48 hours notice to pull off a vegan menu or a vegetarian menu, and we do it all the time. So. I feel like we have both, and I feel like we have a lot of people that appreciate um, the proteins in our menu. I can't tell you how many people have come up from Houston to curate and said, this is what a tasting should be. This is value for my dollar. Um, so we hear that. And, I, and, I, and for me, it's important if you're going to charge someone $100 or 125 or even 95 for a tasting, there needs to be some substance in the menu for sure. You shouldn't walk away hungry. Yeah, the old uh, go to Whataburger afterwards, that's... Uh... That is not the I, I can I can speak from experience having dined at curate uh, three or four times. That is yeah, that is you not don't an leave issue. That's important to me for sure. I mean, Nathan, you you grew up in the Woodlands. You and Austin know each other pretty well. When he told you that he was working on this, what was your reaction? I was very excited. I've I've eaten I had eaten plenty of uh, uh, tastings, uh, whether by choice or not, uh, from Austin, and uh, they're all pretty good. He's a he's a he's a uh, in his mind, he's a good chef. So, uh, <laughs> um, no, uh, he's a very great chef, and uh, I think he's one of the better chefs in the entire city, actually. And uh, oh my god, he's getting cocky. No, uh, he's a really good chef, and that's awful nice of you, Nathan. Oh shut! I know it doesn't come easy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like poison coming out of my mouth. Uh, no, diners from Houston really need to go up there, try the food. Um, I know the drive gets people kind of freaked out. It's a whole thirty minutes, but. Um, I mean, it's worth it. Uh, I think it's definitely one of the better tasting menus in the city. Uh, and when he told me about it, I was excited because uh, I thought it would be a hit. It has been a hit. Um, I think uh, it hasn't gotten the buzz in the city of Houston that it should have, but it's definitely been a hit down uh, down on that side. Yeah, and let me just let me just shift gears just a little bit because um, you were talking about vegetables and access to ingredients. Um, I know you spent. Well, like the better part of a month in Europe uh, recently. Fifteen days. Oh, two weeks. Okay. Well, I was I was just trying to keep track of you on Instagram. And it just felt like there was like. I was in Mexico after that, so it kind of felt like I was gone for the whole month. Um, what was that experience like in Europe, and and is it changing the way that you think about kind of what you're doing at Curate and Hubble and Hudson? You know, Eric, if I ever had a worry in my mind of what I was doing at Curate by the protein-centric and the European-style tasting was not what is regarded as a high level in a lot of places. Europe solved that for me. I worked in a three-star. I worked in a two-star. And what I put out is very similar to what they're putting out in France and in Switzerland. Um, it has changed my way of thinking in some regard as to um, – a lot of those chefs have their own gardens, and it's it's amazing what they get to grow there. And in the Alps, uh, in France, where some of the best restaurants are right now, three-star Michelins, two-star Michelins, um, these guys are foraging 
some unbelievable product. I, I worked in a three-star in um, Meshev with for a whole day with Emmanuel Reynaud, who is worked for uh, Mark Verar, who Mark Verar and Joel Robichon pretty much pioneered modern French gastronomy. And he worked for him for 10 years, or maybe even 12 or 15, I can't remember. Um, but now they're saying he is carrying the torch in a whole new level of those guys. And um, I started at 5.30 in the morning. We're trekking up 12,000 elevation, picking porcinis and chanterelles for free. And he gets 22 kilos a week of a mushroom that costs us $30 a pound here. And the wild herbs and the wild berries. I mean, Mark Verar, I went to his restaurant too. He's got a forager that goes out to the mountaintops every day, picks wild herbs and berries, and he comes to your table. He's like a server. He comes to your table and tells you where he picked it, where it came from, how they manipulate it into your dish. And it, to be honest with you, it's flavors I'd never experienced before. Um, so it definitely has me thinking on the level of how do, we res- how do I resource uh, better in my area, help farmers more so they can help me more, um, how do I cultivate more of that? Because, you know, produce in Texas is rough. I mean, it's, it's, it's not consistent, um, and it, it changes weekly. So, you know, when I opened Curate, my, my goal, well, when I tried to roll out a vegetarian menu two years ago, my goal was, okay, let's take a vegetable and do it as many ways as we can. Let's bring the three to four best to the plate, and that's what we're going to give the guest. And we searched all the local produce we could find through the vendors. And we did that and we did it with squash and we did it with carrot. We did it with all these different things and we would get a dish perfect. And the next week it'd be a train wreck. And it was because the carrot and the squash didn't taste the same. The residual sugar wasn't the same. So, you know, the discipline the French had in those kitchens, um, the level of care from the cooks uh, really blew me away. Uh, I can't stress enough how, militant and how crazy those kitchens were from a standpoint of it's perfection every service or you know the, the roof's blown off professionally or unprofessionally i mean I, I talked to a guy in switzerland that says i you know and he got voted best restaurant by the french in 2016 he said chef you know i never yell i spent the whole afternoon with him he had 50 seats and 35 line cooks i never yell i show the cook once i show the cook twice if the third time he can't get it he's fired immediately Third time, that's it. And I, I never raised my voice in this kitchen. Um, so, you know, on that end, I, I, I thought it was very interesting. You know, we had some amazing food, a lot of protein-centric food. Uh, every course in the tasting menus I had, I had two vegetable tastings and nine tastings, all two and three-star Michelin. Two vegetable courses with no protein. Um, so it validated a lot of what I've done. You know, I hold my staff and my team really accountable on sauce work. And I think that's, that's really dissipating in the U.S. cuisine in a lot of ways. Um, and we, we saw, I saw that in France uh, on the level that I was trained to do it. And it, and it really, you know, really kind of validated, hey, you know, this is still important. You know, Alano Yakino, who has three three-star Michelin restaurants in Paris, um, two in the city, and then he's got one in the, in the mountains, uh, regarded as one of the best chefs in France by far, came out to the table, talked to me, and handed me a sauce book and said, you need to read this for your career. Um, and the first page talks about how sauce work is being lost in U.S. cuisine. It blew my mind. And, and I've been preaching that for years. So um, I would say those are, the, those are the things that I pulled from that experience. Also, in the three-star, I probably learned more in, in four hours than I've learned in the last five years just because they were so forward-thinking 
and what they were doing. Um, so it was pretty crazy. So then the other thing I wanted to ask you about is you, obviously you had the, these very high-end experiences. Uh, you've also developed an interest in barbecue. Yes, sir. And you hosted a, a pop-up recently with, uh, with our friend uh, Anthony Campofelice, serving barbecue to people at, at Hubble and Hudson Kitchen. Uh, you hosted a, a one-off barbecue dinner with uh, Will and Nicole Buckman from Corkscrew Barbecue at Curate. Um, what is it about barbecue that you find so interesting? You know, uh, I owe a lot of that to Will and Anthony um, and Nathan, really. The first bite of, and I was with you at, at, at uh, Corkscrew back when it was a, a tent. I mean, I, I had never, I grew up in Texas my whole life. I'd never had barbecue that dripped down my forearms. I didn't even know that existed. Um, and so the very first bite of Will's brisket I had, um, it changed me in a lot of ways. I, I, I just never, I'd never experienced that before. Um, so I got a little interested in it then. And then, you know, Anthony is extremely talented in it in his own right. And he, would, he was always playing at his house. So I've, I've, I've really started to think about the element of smoke and what, and, you know, I am big on Pan-Asian flavors, as you know. Um, and so the element of smoke with that is game-changing in a lot of ways. Um, and so I've been playing with it for a long time with Anthony. And then I said, hey, you know, I mean, you like to do this. This is what your hobby is. Let's, let's do it. And, and I think I cooked a couple of briskets at his house with him and a couple of beef ribs. And um, I'm ADD completely. I can't sit still and managing a pit. It keeps me busy the whole time. And, and I really enjoy that aspect of the kitchen. And that's why I think I've been successful in it is because I can work 20 things at one time and I forget none of them. Um, and so, you know, I channel that and, and barbecue was like this thing that I, you know, you got to wait, 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 wait. But then when you turn out an awesome product, people freak out. I mean, Texans like really freak out over awesome barbecue. And, you know, that validation is, is why I do this in a lot of ways too. So, um, we started doing it. We did the first event and it was just kind of, we'll see what happens. And it was crazy. Um, and then we did a taco event, uh, where we, where we debuted the dry aged beef rib and won that competition. Um, and you know, there's something about staying up all night, uh, in a parking lot with a pit and, you know, a thousand pounds of meat. And if you lose it all, you're completely hosed cause your food cost is going to go nuts. And, uh, but if you if you hit a home run, the amount of people that are blown away is astonishing. So um, I enjoy it. I think it's brought a, a new awareness to our fast casual concept that that didn't we didn't have before. And you know, in the end, this whole year, Hubble and Hudson Kitchens grown sales every month, and that there's very few restaurants on Research Forest that can say that. Um, so we just tried to bring more people out to that concept to see it because we feel like it's a it's a, it's a great restaurant, and we wanted more people to know about it. And um, the barbecue's become more popular than the beer, to be honest. Uh, we've always done these craft beer events, and I wanted to add barbecue, and it's, it's really taken off. Um, so we plan to do two a year. Um, I don't think I'll cook as much as I cooked last time. Um, it was a lot. Um, and, you know, it is very stressful. Um, but I thought we did a pretty good job. Yeah, I, I, having eaten it that day, would agree with you that I think you did a very good job. Thank you. Um, and then so, I mean, you, you basically are operating, um, you know, Hubble and Hudson Bistro and Curate 
and then you have Hubble and Hudson Kitchen, uh, all in the woodlands. Do you ever think about the possibility of opening something in Houston and, and kind of trying your luck in, in the big city, so to speak? Every day. There's no question I want to come to Houston. Um, I will come to Houston. There's no question. Uh, the the talks are are kitchen, obviously, because it's, it's doing extremely well. Um, the talks are kitchen bistro hybrid in the city. Um, we'll see right now. Um, I took over the kitchen front and back house operations and the bistro. It'll be two years at the end of this month. Um, and that was a challenge for me. Um, I, I was very happy the ownership gave me that opportunity and the president gave me that opportunity. And, uh, I've made some really good decisions. I've made some that I've had to go back on, of course, um, uh, and, and try something different. But it was important to me to learn the restaurant front and back uh, because I think so many people in this business are one-sided. And, and, I, and, and so I've really had my nose down how to operate a restaurant that, you know, that's operationally sound and has awesome food and gross sales and brings people back every day. And that's really what my focus has been the last two years. Um, but yes, I would love to come to the city. We've had so many people come to here from Houston, and it's very well received, and and the bistro too. So, I really, I really would like to come to Houston. So, I, I know this is always tricky, but like you'd like to come to Houston, or the ownership is convinced that it would be successful in Houston, and is like actively looking for a space to put it in Houston. Um, I think the ownership thinks it'll be successful in Houston for sure. Uh, we're not actively looking for a space in Houston. Their primary focus f- was was growing black walnuts and, and, and still is for a long time. Um, so I'm not exactly sure what their plans are as a whole on, on where to grow next, but I know the owner wants to grow. Uh, we've had a good year, so I think, I think it's in the near future. I, ca- I can't be for sure, to be honest. But look, for me, my job at this point is to provide upward mobility for my people. My team, I have probably the best culinary team right now that I've ever had. I have seven females in the kitchen. Um, they have an unbelievable amount of finesse. And, you know, I'm growing two sous chefs and a crew of young cooks right now at a very fast rate. And they are just, they're, they're killing it. We, we are super consistent. Um, I have an awesome general manager, Austin Goodwin, at the kitchen. He came up from an expediter and has just turned this restaurant into something that I mean, this year it's it's just absolutely done phenomenally, and so my job is to at this point is to provide more growth for them. Um, I can sit and curate and cook every week and be happy for the rest of my life, but uh, ultimately I'd like to provide a little bit more for my family and my team. So I, I definitely know that I got to grow, and I and I definitely think that Houston is a great market to do so in. So um, really, don't have any plans to tell you exactly when that's going to happen, but. Well, you know, I have to ask. Absolutely. Uh, Nathan, before we uh, move on to the lightning round, do you have any any observations or, or questions for Austin? Yeah, so you uh, you opened Teaser's Modern Seafood and Steak in the Woodlands with John Teaser. He wasn't there very long, and then afterwards you were uh, named co-executive chef with uh, uh, Jeremy Robeson. Uh, how was running that train wreck of a restaurant? Did you did you learn a lot? <laughs> you know, uh, Tzar was there for eight, uh, seven, eight months out of the year, I believe. Um, 
me and Tzar had a pretty big falling out in the end, um, and I kind of regret it to this day, to be honest. You know, Tzar is a lot of things, um, but the one thing he did was provide a career for me. Most people don't know this, but Tzar is the only chef I ever worked for um, as an executive chef. I worked for Adele for one year, but we had so much going on in that food service operation. I, I didn't get a lot of his playbook. Um, so I, I, I did learn a ton from Adele about operating a restaurant that I didn't learn from Tzar. Adele is super systematic and... Um, but crea- the creative side, Tzar is, I mean, he's, he's unbelievable. And Tzar provided a career for me. And so that falling out, you know, I came back years later and pretty much, you know, begged for forgiveness um, because a lot of it was the restaurant was a train wreck. The ownership was a train wreck and Tzar was losing his mind. And I'm just like, man, this is not, you know, good. I, I, I can probably do this better, which was stupid of me being that young. I really didn't know what I was doing. But, you know, me and Jeremy became co-executive chefs and put out pretty good food for the, the duration of that, that kitchen. But to say that that restaurant was organized would be, uh, you know, not valid because it was, a, it was a train wreck. But it was a train wreck from ownership a lot and the building standpoint. We had Vinahood issues. We had, we had a guy, you know, that was boyfriend of the owner at the bar pulling money from the tills. I mean, we had liquor being given away for free. You just can't operate like that. And then you throw Tzar in the middle of that being who he is, and it just becomes a bomb. Um, but I will say, uh, you know, Tzar brought a lot of things to the Woodlands that had never been there before. And, uh, you know, it was a phenomenal restaurant, and we were busy. That yeah. restaurant was not slow. It was a good restaurant. And I look back on that, and I think, man, that was way ahead of its time. Um, and Tzar's known for that. You know, sometimes he's always been ahead of his time in a lot of ways. So I think, you know, it was a good experience. I learned a lot what not to do. But I also, you know, I took so much from what Tzar taught me. You know, I feel like I can hold my own in any kitchen. And I owe a lot of that to that man for sure, um, cooking-wise. Operationally, I've developed a lot on my own and learned a lot from the Hubble and Hudson and Adele. And, um, you know, that's kind of where that is. All right. Well, we are uh, drawing to the end of the the interview, which means that it's time for the lightning round. Five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Beautiful. What is your favorite ingredient? Kimchi. I, I wish my I own fermented vegetarian kimchi. No, no anchovy, no oyster. I've, I ferment vegetarian kimchi, and that is by far my favorite. I, I felt like that was going to be your answer, actually. Um, what is the first concert you ever saw? Garth Brooks. Uh, who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? It's got to be J.J. Watt. I mean, I'm, I grew up country hunting and fishing my whole life. Uh, I'm Texas through and through, and I just think J.J. Watt is a good representation of what Texas is and always has been. That Wisconsin boy is so Texan. Yeah. Well, he's, he's, he's embraced it. He, he, he's embraced it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What is your fast food guilty pleasure? Taco Bell, Saturday night, Mexican oh. pizza, South African red wine. <laughs> oh, that hurts. I can't get enough of it. Um, I don't know. This may this may have ruined question five. What's your favorite place to get a taco? Los Gamalos. It's a small taco truck on 1488 in the back of the woodlands next to a gas station. What do you get? You know, I eat a lot of breakfast tacos there, chorizo, egg. Um, but they have really good barbacoa. Um, but I don't eat a lot of tacos right now on my current diet venture. So, um, but, but when I do go, that's where I like to go, to be honest. All right. Austin, thank you. Thank you, sir. 
Uh, we can follow you on Instagram at Chef Austin Simmons. And of course, HubbleandHudson.com for all the latest goings on at both Hubble and Hudson Bistro Curate and Hubble and Hudson Kitchen. Nathan, thank you. We can uh, follow you on Instagram, H-Town Food Junkie. Really, you're more active on Twitter, also H-Town Food Junkie. But you have a, a fancy new iPhone now, so maybe maybe this will prompt you to Instagram more I've frequently. taken a few photos. I still haven't posted them, but I've thought about it a couple times. All right. It's not very active. Yeah. We're going to work on that. It's a, it's a process. And, of course, you can follow me on Twitter at eSandler, on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest bar and restaurant news. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week.